This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. We're going to be discussing the end of the pandemic transitioning to a high value system. I could not be happier today to chat with Dr. David Nash. He's someone that doesn't really need an introduction, but I'll give one anyway. He's an American physician. He's a world-renowned scout scholar, public health expert. He's the founding dean emeritus of the Jefferson College of Population Health. I mean, his accolades and achievements and healthcare transformation are innumerable, but I'll, I'll mention just one. Just last week, he won the Lifetime Achievement Award from the American Association of Physician Leadership. And if all of that wasn't enough, Dr. Nash is a best-selling author with his new book, How COVID Crashed This System, A Guide to Fixing American Healthcare. So in today's chat, we're going to be discussing insights from Dr. Nash's research on COVID-19's impact on the healthcare system and how the post-pandemic era can help us transition to a higher value system. So Dr. Nash, welcome. So excited to be with you. Yeah, thanks so much, Eric. Great to be together. Appreciate it. Uh, yeah, my most important title is grandfather right now. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we have number three is on the way any day now. So that's pretty exciting, but thanks very much. And with regard to the AAPL event, uh, I had uh, thousands of people uh, uh, check in with me on LinkedIn since uh, Saturday night it was really fantastic experience. And I've taught 6,000 AAPL members in person over 33 years. So that'll be a tough record to break. It's uh, if I wish I was good at tennis as Novak Djokovic, but he'll never beat my record of 6,000 AAPL members. So, uh, it was really a wonderful event on Saturday, and my wife was with me and a lot of pals. So thanks for bringing that up. Well, Dr. Nash, I mean, congratulations on that achievement. And of course, the most important achievement, you know, that of being a grandfather, yeah. uh, serving your yeah. family in, in the way that you do and, and, and what we all look to do. And, you know, uh, this post-pandemic era it really forces us to put a lens on future generations. You know, I mean, we're coming out of a pandemic where we have 1.2 million Americans dead. And it seems like we might be going back to business as usual. It, sure. it, you know, 
uh, you know, we we see now that uh, Dr. Ashish Jha, the White House COVID-19 response coordinator, he's going to be leaving his post on July 1. Right. Uh, Rochelle Walensky's uh, leaving her post as CDC director. And there's a big transition underway, it seems. And your book was really a barometer to help people what under, understand what happened and uh, with this COVID disaster, which is the biggest medical error in history. And and then how do we create this awakening, you know, to make sure it doesn't happen again. So as we start our conversation today, I wanted to see, David, if you could provide your perspective on where we are now as a country in terms of accepting the hard truths of the pandemic and what is the residual structure in place? Uh, should a new variant come back? And I'm hoping you could tell me we learned our lesson and yeah. have a permanent leadership uh, place uh, placement, but Right. Uh, I, I'm sensing we may not be uh, anywhere close where we need to be as a country. Yeah, well, I, th those are a lot of great questions, Eric. Let, let, let me try to you know, unpack it a little bit. And I appreciate your talking about uh, our book with Charles Wolforth and uh, basically how I spent uh, two years of work during the pandemic to produce uh, how COVID crashed the system. Uh, well, I was with uh, Ashish Jha, who's a good pal, yesterday morning in Washington at the Council of Economic Development. Uh, Mark McClellan and I were the reactors in a panel discussion at the beautiful Willard Hotel uh, in downtown D.C. It was Ashish's last day in the White House yesterday. So back to Brown University School of Public Health he goes. And somebody asked him the same question you're asking me. So why don't we start with that? And he's, uh, the question that, that they asked Dr. Jawa, you know, are we ready? And he gave a very nuanced answer, which was, uh, well, we accomplished a lot. Uh, we have an infrastructure in place, sort of. Uh, my own personal view is that the, you know, the office of the presidential response to COVID is now a janitorial closet somewhere in the East West Wing of the White House, if that. So, look, it is said. Um, I think most people would like to have all of this in the rearview mirror and not give another thought. But let's put it into perspective: 1.2 million dead. That is the total of all combat casualties of every war since the Revolutionary War for the United States. I mean, uh, I'm a history buff. And so I'm interested in this on multiple levels. And as we discussed in the last chapter of how COVID crashed the system, for people who have read the Ian Toll trilogy about the war in the Pacific, here's the punchline, Eric. Sadly, in our great history, when the dying stops, the forgetting begins. When the dying stops, the forgetting begins. And so people want to forget. I get it. Uh, but one of the reasons I wrote the damn book is uh, I, I can't forget. I mean, I can't. I have PTSD from it. And I was not on the front lines taking care of patients. My daughter was, uh, as my wife and I were home watching, and she's a physician too. So I, I don't know about you, but I still think about it every day. So to answer your question, most Americans, uh, COVID's over. What's your problem? And nobody wants to wear a mask anymore. And nobody wants to think about it. Now, we have more than a million people who have uh, long COVID, so they're living proof that we're still living with this. We have uh, uh, cases in China going like this because they have no herd immunity. So from a clinical perspective, yeah, emergency's over. I get it. 
I think from a societal perspective and in our industry, to me, it's not over. And to declare, you know, the emergency over, I understand the politics of that. Let's just look at an immediate consequence, an immediate consequence from May 11th, when COVID was declared over, uh, an immediate consequence is tens of millions of poor Americans who lost their Medicaid coverage. Now, this has all kinds of implications. There's going to be redetermination, which is the fancy way of saying they got to re-enroll. And then there's the fact right here in Philadelphia where Medicaid is a huge payer and we have five academic medical centers. Uh, these people are going to end up in our emergency room and it's going to cost a fortune and they're going to get sick because they have no access and we're back to where we were in March of 2020. So short answer to your question, when the dying stops, the forgetting begins. That's pretty sad. And uh, my issue is, are, have we learned anything and are we going to be better prepared? So we could tackle those questions in turn if you'd like. But it's, um, I think it's a sad day for America's biggest business, which is healthcare. Well, David, uh, I, we appreciate the candor and you know the brutal honesty. Brutal. And, you know, yeah. And you and I had the conversation, you know, just a couple of days ago, yeah. and you made this uh, uh, point that left an indelible impression on me. You know, after nine eleven, you know, we had three thousand people die, right. and we're still taking our shoes off at the airport. Yep. But with COVID nineteen, it's business as usual. Business no one's driving the bus. Right. It's a it's a little scary out there. Yeah. Well, I brought this up with, uh, you know, Ashish, who's a great guy and, you know, and Mark McClellan, super smart. These are the top people in the country. And I think we all agree, look, we, we did an amazing job, no question about it, warp speed, getting everybody vaccinated. Of course, the science was amazing, a lot of it right here in Philadelphia. Uh, on the other hand, I think the societal issues, they were very tough to handle, structural racism, inequality, and no one wants to talk about how we're going to tackle those issues. I think, Eric, for me, the take-home message, I guess, if you had to have one message would be, you know, what's the true north of America's biggest industry? Healthcare. So let's just frame it up that way. We got $4 trillion in annual spending. About a trillion of that is probably of no value and maybe even dangerous. So that's one take-home. We, we don't, life expectancy in the United States is in reverse gear. Uh, and three, we don't rank in the top 10 of positive outcomes for almost any measure of the health of the population as compared to any Western developed country. So lack of a true North, lack of a return on this $4 trillion investment, uh, and uh, all sorts of very tough societal measures uh, alcoholism, depression, suicide, opioid abuse, all of this, and a whole generation of adolescents who are depressed and suicidal. So I, I, I'm not a Johnny Downer. I'm a very optimistic guy, but I also look at the research evidence and it's a huge disconnect. And, and that is my main message. And then what will leaders do about this disconnect? So I think it's a, a important question to ask and my own great city of Philadelphia. Uh, I'm three blocks from the Liberty Bell, Independence Place, Constitution Hall. I'd love everybody to visit. And we're coming up on our favorite holiday, July 4th, right? Uh, but our town has suffered unbelievably from COVID and uh, deaths. 
uh, and disability. And now we're back to facing all the same problems we faced in March of 2020, lack of access, uh, redlining, uh, crime, homelessness, educational disparity. And most vexing to me is disparity in life expectancy, right? Which we currently is somewhere around 20 years. So if you live right near Jefferson and Society Hill, you got an 88 year life expectancy. If you take a taxi up to Temple University Medical School, your life expectancy, if you're born around there is 68. So we have a 20 year disparity in life expectancy. I mean, if you're poor in America, you have bad health. That's sort of another take home message. So these are the structural issues that remain. And even though COVID may not be a public emergency, I get it. The structural challenges are all still there. So Eric, that gets us to a whole set of new questions, but I think that's the summary as to where we are in June of 2023. Well, Dr. Nash, uh, you know, it's readily apparent, you know, to all of us, these structural challenges remain, but I can't help but think there's some level of elevated consciousness that's taken place as a result of the pandemic. You know, we see now see, for example, a heightened sense of awareness around health equity, and we've had systemic health inequities in our country since the <laughs> transatlantic slave trade. Yeah. I mean, it's it's the, the data is irrefutable. irrefutable. Uh, we haven't done anything about it materially in terms of reversing that terrible trend. And the public, you know, saw, you know, these exacerbated health outcomes that came out of COVID-19 within uh, minoritized communities, they right. saw the pre-existing disparities and how they were magnified under the microscope. And, right. you know, you wrote an article a while, a while back and it had the sentence, you know, COVID-19 blasted a searing light on social determinants of health. And right. just in thinking about that, I have to hope that we're at this point where we can collectively realize that value-based care cannot truly be attained without addressing these health inequities. So, you know, can you speak a little bit about where we are in terms of committing as a country to abolishing these racial disparities in care and how the pandemic provided us with the lens to, you know, take charge and in incorporating this within the value movement? Uh, well, I'll try, Eric. I, I wish I had all the answers, you know, clearly I don't. But what do I see happening in the marketplace? And, you know, this is, I spend a lot of time talking to people all over the country and traveling. So my, my sense right now is uh, finally, I think the conversation about value-based care, and we could even debate what that means, but what I'm seeing is you can't have value without equity. Uh, that That's a relatively new way of thinking about value-based care, at least as best as I could tell. And what does that mean? Well, I, I think we're when we understand the economic implications of inequality and disparity, that gets people's attention. People like chief financial officers at big delivery systems and integrated systems and managed care plans. You can't have value without equity. Why? Well, the cost of those disparities, uh, recent work that everybody's read in JAMA even in the last month, we're talking about tens of billions of dollars annually, lost productivity, premature death, uh, disabilities. I mean, all of that means it costs the system a lot of money. And employers are getting engaged in this conversation, I think, to a greater level than ever before. And then the final thing that I'm seeing, and we use this uh, 
you know, somewhat clunky term of the payvider, these new relationships between payers and providers, even in our own town, I'll get to that in a minute, but I think the emergence of the payvider has given value-based care extra energy. So to summarize, you can't have value without equity. I think that that gets people's attention. The economic implications of this lack of equity and the disparities really powerful in the tens of billions. And then the creation of the new payvider model. So a good example right here in Philly is even at Jefferson, where I've been for three decades. I mean, we now own a Medicaid managed care plan that's very successful. We're about to rename it from Health Partners Plan to Jefferson Health Plan. That's really exciting. I didn't think in my three decades here I would ever see Jefferson Health Plan. So I'm excited about this. One of the reasons I'm still working because I think I want to be around to see will that sort of model and the payment coordination, alignment of incentives, care coordination, will that finally get us to sort of, you know, the promised land of delivering a higher value at a better care at a lower cost? So I'm optimistic that you can't have value without equity, the rise of the pay provider. And I guess, Eric, the third piece is something you and I think about all the time, and that's changing medical, nursing, and pharmacy education to produce the doctor of the future, if you would. So she'll be prepared to work in this pay provider world. So these are the sort of three take-home messages make me more excited and still optimistic about value-based care. But to me, most important message is you can't have value without equity. It, it, and that makes such key, important sense to me. Well, Dr. Nash, I think another important vector that's moving the industry, perhaps in you know a positive direction that uh, coming out of the pandemic is just innovation and consumerism. Yeah. I mean, we saw, you know, during the public health emergency that it, you know, we were really forced to test innovations at scale. You know, things like telehealth and hospital at home and physical infrastructure changes and novel medical devices and yes. all of the, you know, which provided these federal agencies with data on what works. I mean, there's certainly a, a great amount of research and understanding now. Although a lot of these innovations are going to cease with the ending of the public health emergency. I mean, we have an extension, you know, through next year on the Medicare telehealth flexibilities. Right. Congress also extended acute hospital at home uh, care at home program right. through 2024. So a lot of hospitals can continue to receive waivers and reimbursements for hospital at home. So David, well, I mean, what is your take on the long-term impact of the flexibilities that were granted yeah. during the public health emergency? And then is that, is this somewhat of an inflection point? Well, Maybe I, we can look to. It's a great question, Eric. I, I think we are at an inflection point. Let, let's go back to, you know, March, April, May, of 2020, a very tough time indeed, and, and tough here at Jefferson, and I didn't do it, but I, I had colleagues who were all over telehealth way before the pandemic, and who trained uh, very quickly, spun up a program to train a thousand Jefferson doctors how to do telehealth. We kept the doors open digitally, but there was a digital divide in our town. Folks who didn't have uh, internet access, well, they couldn't do telehealth. And, and so all of a sudden, you know, maybe we're starting to pay attention to some zip codes that we never paid attention to with all due respect prior. 
So sure, that spurred a lot of innovation, hospital at home, amazing technology, all because of internet and digital tools. Um, but there are challenges here. Look, uh, there's very little research on the actual clinical outcome from all these tools. It all sort of makes sense to me. I get it. I'm certainly not a Luddite, but uh, I, I think uh, this was all stimulated by economic incentives. We never would have done any of this had it not been for the pandemic and the economic drivers that led to rapid adoption and diffusion of telehealth and hospital at home. The real test is going to be now, uh, as you noted, when the laws, uh, you know, sunset and we're not going to get paid the same amount. I mean, there's rumbling in doctor groups around the country. No, I want you to come back to see me in person. Uh, okay. Uh, when we do that, um, you know, we'll, ha we'll have some comparisons about the digital outcome versus the in-person outcome. So my take on this is, yeah, there's lots of new technology. I think the real technology we can't even begin to scratch the surface of are two things, certainly, or maybe three. So revolution in cancer care with precision medicine and all the CAR-T therapies lined up to do that. The impact of chat GPT and what that's going to mean and uh, artificial intelligence. I mean, the whole area, incredible. And maybe the third technology uh, more broadly would be um, multi-cancer early detection testing. What's the impact of that? All the technology involved in precision health. So pre precision health and AI together, well, that's a potential major revolution. I, I'm not an expert in these areas. I pay a lot of attention to them, but I'm not a card carrying expert. I think they're going to eclipse all the telehealth and health medicine at home kind of stuff. We're, we're in a whole new world of how these are going to impact training and applying the tools and precision medicine. I think we're really around the corner from being able to do, you know, an in the office uh, buckle smear. Here's your genetic code. Here's your hypertensive drug. And here's your SSRI. And uh, I mean, we're, we're knocking at the door being able to finally uh, do all of that. So that's going to have a greater impact, I think. And all of this is stimulated in part by uh, people want convenience, they want their care when they want it. You know, frankly, Eric, I think the bigger trend is not the technology, but the dominance in the near term of the market by the four big players. And of course, I'm speaking about Walmart, Walgreens, CVS, and Amazon. I mean, these are the forces, the big four, that are going to drive unbelievable technologic adoption and diffusion uh, greater even than what COVID stimulated. That's my view. And, you know, there's no research on this yet, but I I'm following this very carefully. So Amazon, Walgreens, Walmart, and CVS, that's where the action is. Um, and, you know, that says a lot about where we're going. I think it's going to have a huge influence on clinical training, doctors, nurses, pharmacists, everybody in the business. We have a whole new era to think about and the tens of billions of dollars invested by these big four to create both horizontal and vertical delivery systems. Uh, there's an article in today's New York Times about the corporatization of clinical practice and what does it mean? Uh, so these big four, they're the major, to answer your question, they're the technologic drivers.
it, the on again, off again switch of telehealth, that's going to look like kindergarten activity, in my view, compared to the unbelievable change coming from the big four. Well, Dr. Nash, as you're discussing technology, you know, I can't help but think about this corollary issue with artificial intelligence. Oh. I mean, we have many leaders out there that are saying, you know, this in the very near future is going to pose an existential threat to humanity, just like the pandemic yeah. or the threat of nuclear war or climate change. And, you know, I, I just, uh, I guess I just wanted to ask you, one, is there some lesson to be learned, you know, with you know, us dealing with the doomsday scenario with the pandemic, yeah. that we can somehow, you know, navigate, you know, through the, 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 this explosion of technology and the intelligence that's now eclipsing humanity as we kind of reach this singularity. I mean, how are we going to responsibly, yep. you know, deal with some of the technology changes that are underway? Well, that technology, again, I, I'm not a AI expert, but I'm rapidly coming up to speed. I'm reading Tom Lowry's great new book. Uh, back in Washington yesterday, we had a briefing by the top AI leader from the Accenture company, their global leader on AI. Uh, you read yesterday the European Union uh, passed some new rules and regulations to try to, you know, have some influence on the diffusion of AI even into healthcare. Look, I, I, I don't subscribe to the doomsday scenario, but I've seen some very interesting things even at the local level. So, uh, let me give you a quick story. We asked a uh, ChatGPT to uh, provide a history of the quality and safety movement in the United States over the last two decades. Well, uh, less than three minutes later, a four-page treatise came to my email, which honestly, Eric, I, I don't think I could have done a better job. It freaked me out. I mean, this is what I've spent 30 years working on. So, and you know, the website did it in like under three minutes. So, okay, um, we're seeing applications to universities written by, clearly by uh, ChatGPT. So, uh, we believe that there are tools that can improve physician communication and level of empathy. So, again, I'm optimistic about it, but I, I think it, now's the time to start thinking, how do we teach this stuff to students in both undergraduate medical education and graduate medical education. Uh, if we just wait to see, you, you know, uh, uh, another great example is I'm all about, let's have rotations, clinical rotations in uh, Walgreens, Walmart, Oak Street, Iora, all of that. Let, let's get trainees into these environments right now and figure out what's working and what's not. Let's do some great health services research to see if these new models have better outcomes at a lower cost. Are they really delivering value? Let's study AI in healthcare and make it immediately a part of the curriculum. So uh, again, I'm trying to get up to speed like everybody else. And uh, fortunately, I've met a lot of the leaders. Some of them are going to come to our population health colloquium in September. So we'll get to meet them face to face in addition to reading their books. And as I said, the leadership at Accenture, they're all over this. If you go to Accenture.com, you could read their current report about the impact of AI on healthcare and other industries. So it's uh, very exciting. Um, but I think it's, uh, you know, in the traditional way, we view it as a threat to physician autonomy. 
Well, I reject that. I, I think it's an enhancement, hopefully, if we do it right, to uh, physician tools, physician leadership, uh, and physician uh, you know, guide into the future. But it's going to take uh, work to make that happen. Well, Dr. Nash, uh, I appreciate your comments there. It's certainly uh, an emerging hot topic at the moment. You know, I just happened to be listening to a podcast. Stephen Bartlett was interviewing Mo, Mo Gavet, uh, the former chief business officer at Google. Yeah, wow. And uh, he, he was their chief AI officer. And, you know, he made the comment, you know, uh, we need to be more concerned with how humankind is going to use AI uh, more than the AI itself. And it just reminds me, like, as we look at healthcare, you know, this collision of moral and fiduciary responsibility, right. you know, the fiduciary responsibility, obviously we're obligated to continue to maximize profits for investors, but morally, you know, we have to adhere to the science, you know, the science of the pandemic, you know, the underlying strategies for creating and restoring and maintaining, growing, protecting the health in our country. It's so outdated. You know, we've seen public health perpetually underinvested. Yes. Uh, we're at this really unfortunate intersection. I mean, you wrote an article just a few months ago titled Population Health is the New Public Health. And right. you stated the following, you know, the virus and more importantly, its consequences expose the truth that my colleagues and I have been preaching for over a decade. The public health paradigm is outdated. It's insufficient. Yep. It's major tenants, which are, include public health, epidemiology, behavioral science, environment. They're all important, but they're reactive. Yes. So I, I wanted to ask you just in this post-pandemic era, you know, where the federal government now has this historic opportunity to reshape, you know, public health. And you have CMMI that's you know, looking to expedite this transition to value-based payment, 2030 is the big goal. Right. I mean, do you think we're going to refocus value-based payment reforms that emphasize more, you know, clinical models for prevention? And, wow. and yeah, I, mean, I, I, I mean, I'd love to get your thoughts on just public health and population health and that critical intersection and what we're going to do about it. Great. Well, Eric, you, you asked big questions. So let, let me let me try to tackle this. And yesterday, again, uh, Dr. Ashish Jha and Mark McClellan and I had a very similar conversation. So let's try to tackle it in pieces. So let's look at the current situation, which we describe in detail in the book, of course. So $10,000 per person, including children, that's annual health care spending in the United States. Public health spending is $400 per person, 10 grand versus $400. So is anybody surprised? that the public health infrastructure got crushed by COVID. So, so I think the cultural issue here, and again, this is, you know, you're in a tough area here. It's like the sort of cultural third rail. In medical schools, nursing schools, pharmacy schools, you know, public health is not, they're not attracted to the core tenets of prevention, and vaccination, clean water, you know, Lena Wynn, one of my heroes, says in her book, public health saved your life today. You just don't remember or you just don't know it, right? Clean water, clean air, except maybe here in Philadelphia in the last week, uh, vaccination, uh, sanitation, all of that. So public health, let's be blunt, public health to young people who are in medical school is not sexy. I, I'm using that term on purpose. It's not attractive. What's attractive to medical students are super subspecialists doing their thing, orthopedists and all the subspecialties in medicine. You got to be an ologist and have a tool. That's what's attractive. 
the, the public health docs who are hardly even present in many training environments, it's not seen as a, a career trajectory. So that's a cultural challenge. Then there's the funding challenge, $10,000 versus $400. Then there's the deployment challenge. The pandemic proved in our city uh, who's in charge of the public health infrastructure. Our hospitals at Jefferson and the other three academic medical centers, no one knew who had been vaccinated and who didn't. The, the city government and the public health infrastructure in our county was separate, wholly separate from the state public health infrastructure. So we have structural challenges, we have a cultural challenge, we have a financial challenge. Uh, this is not going to be fixed uh, anytime soon unless we have lots of leadership to tackle these very complicated structural, technologic, and cultural challenges. But you said something, Eric, I want to go back to, and you use the word fiduciary. So I, I'm going to focus in on that for a moment. I, I am really concerned about the not-for-profit trustee governance level control of our industry. And you're talking to somebody who's been a hospital trustee times two, each for 10 years. So I've been there for 20 years as a board member of two very successful not-for-profit healthcare systems. Um, and I'm worried that those folks at the board level who may not even have a core competency in healthcare, they're controlling, when you boil it all away, they're controlling a lot of resources that are public money via how we spend Medicare and Medicaid dollars. And I think at the governance level in the not-for-profit healthcare world, this is a gigantic challenge that hardly anybody's speaking of. And um, it's controversial uh, when you say, hey, governance leaders, are you up to the task? That's my question. And I, I'm not going to say more about this, uh, but my view is uh, you want to talk about fiduciary responsibility. Let's start at the very top. Let me give you an example. And it's not nefarious or pernicious in any way. But if you want the delivery system in the not-for-profit world to drive a population health agenda, I have a way that I believe would work, and it's not complicated. Influence via the paycheck the senior most managers and leaders. Let me translate. It's the board's responsibility to declare that we've rediscovered our true north, which is to improve health, and we're going to put our leaders, CEO, CFOs, chief nursing officers, chief quality officers, we're going to put all of them at economic personal risk for achieving an improvement in health. That would move the needle like tomorrow. So when you look at every other industry, this is not Nash making this up. There's huge research evidence to support my contention that true fiduciary leadership of America's biggest industry starts at the very top, of course, and new economic incentives, in addition to capitation and bundled payment, new economic incentives at the leadership level are necessary to drive a change in behavior and to send a signal to the thousands of employees who work in these places that we've rediscovered our true north, which is to improve health. 
that's controversial, Eric. I get it. Um, there's a target on my back, I know, for some of this. And we talk a little bit about this and how COVID crashed the system about a new governance model. But as I see where we are now, you know, just literally a month after the end of the emergency, I don't see boards outside of a handful of organizations embracing the notion that we're in the business to improve health. We're not in the business to increase market share. And I totally understand, you know, no margin, no mission, of course, but I'm issuing a personal challenge, maybe in a nice way to governance across the nation in the not-for-profit healthcare sector where the measures of outcome are not as clear cut as they are in the Hospital Corporation of America or in uh, Cigna or Aetna, uh, I'm issuing a nice challenge. Hey, are you up to what I see we have to tackle immediately? That's, uh, that's my heartfelt view. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Nash, for sharing that. Uh, you know, we, ha we have to recognize this moral imperative and yes. healthcare transformation. Uh, you know, Don Berwick, you know, wrote about this in JAMA uh, uh, earlier this year, you know, salve lucrum, you know, the, the, the greed and the profit motive in healthcare uh, boards have to hold their executives accountable. We have to realign compensation right. and we have to truly awaken our delivery system to be more aligned with patient centered outcomes. Well, and, thank you. And what thank you for bringing wants, up so. Don's piece. Uh, you know, we all, respect uh, Don Berwick, uh, great. I mean, he's been a 30-year pal for me, a mentor, role model. Um, I, I certainly subscribe to uh, that most recent piece. I think it's uh, damning, uh, putting it politely. I, I think it's a damning observation and sadly, highly accurate. That, that's my perspective. Yeah, I would, I would have to say that's the case. Um... But, you know, there, I have hope that, we're, you know, because of conversations like this, we, we do have a brighter tomorrow. And I wanted to open up the conversation, you know, to the audience. Oh, boy. Unscripted questions from the audience. Okay. Glad I had a good breakfast. <laughs> so my question is, with all of the new reports of not having enough medications, being out of penicillin, being out of cancer drugs, how are we going to address those immediate needs at the hospital level? I've been the CPO for several hospitals, so I understand the whole flow of how everything works. But I contacted our local hospital, Banner. They do not have enough medications right now for people in-house. Wow. Yeah. Well, uh, it's a powerful, important area. So I've been on the Pharmacy and Therapeutics Committee at Jefferson for three decades, so I totally feel your pain. I, I don't have a solution to that challenge. Uh, I mean, we haven't talked about big pharma, little pharma, generic pharma, biotech. It's a gigantic, super important industry. They're in the gun sites of the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, I'm sure you're aware. Uh, uh -huh. There are complex supply chains that go all the way from Mumbai, India to Philadelphia that are part of this shortage, uh, but I, I can't give you an educated answer on a specific drug shortage other than my own experience on the P&T committee, so I certainly empathize, uh, but I can't give you the answer. Uh, Do I you think, think that there will be money or things moving forward that Americans will start manufacturing and going uh, back to actually doing some of our own? Okay, well, that I can definitely give you some personal reflection. The short answer is yes. I'm very privileged to be on the board of directors of a publicly held generic drug company. Uh, we have a very successful, re, uh, you know, energized effort uh, to increase domestic uh, 
production to improve the pipeline from India to meet all the stringent FDA guidelines. I mean, and not just this company, but many others. So, so I think the industry knows that it's on notice uh, and we're gonna have to deliver uh, and improve the supply chain. Uh, that's an entirely different topic. I mean, we could spend an hour on the big pharma global supply chain, which is incredibly complicated as I've come to learn. I think I see that you're doing something with a company here in the States. I think that's great. I think it's going to change a lot of what's happening right now. And at least the fear mongering of we can't do anything. You're doing something positive. That's great. Thank you so much for all of your comments today. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Great question. Okay. I wanted to take now a question from Tom Merrill. Thanks, Dr. Nash, for, uh, and, and Eric for taking my question. It comes from, I, I was inspired this morning reading um, Josh Lau and Emil Navitz's um, article in Health Affairs about the very topic you addressed earlier, and that was you know, promoting health equity within yeah. value-based care and that you can't really have value-based care without it. Um, their article is directed toward really payers and policymakers to, to basically build into their programs um, more um, you know, structural elements to support uh, health equity. Yes. I wondered if you had any uh, examples in your many travels of organi provider organizations that you think are really stepping up on this from an organizational competency standpoint to produce health equity and, and as a bonus within the confines of value-based care. Any any standouts that you'd mentioned? Yeah, great question. So let me give you the short answer first. Uh, no, I'm not, I don't see any particular uh, payer or provider uh, uh, leading the nation in this, but here's my more nuanced answer. Um, we have a burgeoning new industry, if you would, of getting the social determinants of health measures into the workflow. So as I'm sure you appreciate and our other listeners too, NCQA, CMS, the Joint Commission and others, Vizient, the Premier, all have SDOH tools and measures that are applicable to fit into the EMR workflow. Uh, the challenge about all these measures, most especially I think from CMS and the Joint Commission, there are two big challenges. There's very few uh, studies to uh, confirm the val validity of the, the tools. So we, you know, we don't have any work yet, which measure is the more important one, even down to questions like, is lack of shelter more important than lack of food? I mean, that's kind of where we're at. So we have a, uh, a, a deluge maybe, of measures, we're not sure which ones we ought to put into the system. That's challenge one. And then challenge two is, well, great to catalog these social determinants in an attempt to improve equity. I get it. But how are we going to do that? In other words, if you give doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and others lots of detail about the challenges that a particular patient or patient group is facing, which I think is a step in the right direction, you better provide resources and some answers in community-based organizations or related connectivity to help tackle the challenge. So let me give you some answers. Uh, 
organizations like uh, City Block Health and uh, WellBeat and, and others whose job it is to tackle the social determinants and improve medication adherence and do all the right things, well, they're still not the mainstream. Uh, so getting all of this into the mainstream of reimbursement and provider payer relations to get to your question, uh, I think that will be important. I believe we're knocking on the door of how to do this. Uh, so on the one hand, I'm very appreciative that there are all these new measures out there. On the other hand, I'm concerned that we're going to have a similar situation to the quality and measurement movement when experts said we had measurement mania on the quality and safety side. And as a result, people stopped paying attention because there were too many darn measures. I am worried that the same thing is going to happen on the social determinant of health side. Too many measures, too many competing groups. Who's in charge? Is it NCQA? Is it the joint? Is it CMS? So uh, great question, Tom. I, I hope that by paying attention and by letting, you know, a thousand flowers bloom, uh, we'll figure out what's the best way to harness that data and then make sense of it and then take action. By the way, this might be a great opportunity for very powerful AI to help us sort out that question. It's a great question, Tom. Thank you for posing it. As I'm waiting for the next question, you know, Dr. Nasha, uh, you know, one thing we haven't really talked about is the mental health crisis that was created in this national emergency of COVID-19. Um, you know, and the data, I think before the pandemic was we had one out of five Americans living with some type of behavioral health condition. Yes. And, you know, that's like 50 plus million people. And, right. you know, there's about 20 million people with, you know, substance use disorder. Right. There's uh, about 9 million people, as I understand, about 4% of the population that's, you know, dealing with uh, issues of suicidality. Um, and then you compound that with social isolation. You know, we see, we, we, we talked the other day, you and I, about the impact that, that this has had on younger generations in terms of their uh, socialization, you know, I, I just, I, I feel like, uh, and I don't think we've had another refresh of this data um, in terms of seeing the, the, the growth of this behavioral health crisis, but it seems to be alarming right now. And, you know, this is multi-billion dollar impact. I mean, it's, it's people's lives uh, and we have to, you know, somehow address it. So I, I wanted to just, you know, get your take on, you know, what do you see, you know, in the landscape currently? And, you know, maybe how are we going to recalibrate coming out of the pandemic to, to make sure that um, we can provide people with the behavioral health and health care that they need? Yeah. So great, great question, Eric. And we did have coming out of the AMA meeting in Chicago where I was not present, but they did a refresh of the data. It's all over the news yesterday and today. So let's do a quick review. So prior to COVID, the four horses of the mental health apocalypse, right? Opioid alcoholism, depression, and suicide were driving average life expectancy in the United States for the first time since the Second World War in the wrong direction. So as you noted, COVID then just took these four horses and, you know, made them gallop. And my analogy meaning we had an explosion in uh, opioid, uh, alcoholism, certainly depression, domestic violence, gun violence, a lot of which is attributable to the social disruption of isolation 
and COVID overlay and all the anxiety that came from that. Look, I, I'm, I'm not a mental health expert as an internist, but the numbers are staggering. We have a young person generation of PTSD sufferers from COVID. And again, going back to where we were 45 minutes ago, Eric, you know, uh, people don't want to hear this uh, until you get into the community and you talk to any general pediatrician like my sister-in-law, who every day, sadly, is dealing with suicidal teenagers. It's, it's tragic. I mean, there's no words to, to really, you know, put into place just how uh, important this is for our society. And, you know, uh, we have so much you know, we've talked about so much in terms of the, the grim statistics, the dysfunction, the broken system of healthcare. I mean, but if we could somehow, I think, you know, if you look at like these blue zones, for example, yes. you know, places in the world where people live to be, you know, upwards of 100 and, you know, there, there's a sense of community. There's solidarity in a belief system. Obviously, right. there's impacts on diet, but… Right. You know, we, we have to overcome this like tribalism and isolation that that even preceded the pandemic. Well, it's just, I, it's I don't so see, sadly, I, I don't see any end to that. And I, I'm not going to get into blue versus red, but let's look at the evidence as it relates to healthcare to address your question. So the, only in America does your health be affected by the political party of your state governor. Let's translate. If you live in a blue state, you're healthier than if you live in a red state. The evidence is incontrovertible. And a lot of that has to do with the economics of accepting uh, uh, appropriate uh, uh, aid to uh, increase Medicaid enrollment, uh, uh, funding federal health care centers, all the rest. So, so we, the politics here are daunting and they have a direct impact on health and on mental health. Now. The private sector is trying to tackle this. And again, some of the for-profit primary care disrupting companies, which we've already mentioned, uh, mental health is a cornerstone of their delivery system. You, you absolutely can't even go for a visit without having a mental health check-in, social worker, psychologist, psychiatrist, whatever it is. So I think we need a new model that puts mental health training mental health services payment, mental health services research on the same level as healthcare delivery. Uh, we're nowhere near close to that. And so the PTSD generation, and I think every family who's honest has been affected, has had their mental health affected by COVID. And uh, I know we have, I don't know a family who hasn't been. And so when we put resources into this, it's akin to the public health conversation we had moments ago. It's going to take a policy change, allocation of resources, and a recognition that this is a, a important problem that needs a policy solution. Well, thank you, Dr. Nash, for your comments. So important. I'd like to now take another audience question. Uh, Paulo, would you like to come on? And hey, David, great to see you again. Thanks for once again a, a great conversation. I just want to get your thoughts around um, what do you see are the, the roadblocks to a rapid transformation to this model that we all kind of know what has to happen. We talk about it an awful lot. What are the key roadblocks? And if you were like the healthcare czar for the country, what would be, where would you go first and what would you make happen? Because as we know, it's a for-profit industry. Yeah. And there's going to be a lot of dislocation. Yeah. Companies will have to be taken off the table potentially. Yeah. 
yeah. like wins three games great. away? Like, what would you do? Yeah, great question. Uh, you know, if I were the czar, I guess, and we do talk about it and how COVID crashed the system. Uh, look, I, I'm not sure you could distill it into one single thing, but if, if you said, okay, you have one shot at this, to me, it's all about realigning economic incentives. We have two decades of health services research that essentially says, if you change how you pay doctors, they will change their clinical practice. I'm, I'm gonna say it again. We have 20 years of incontrovertible evidence that when you change physician payment, you change clinical decision-making, mostly for the good. So I think we have to realign economic incentives that will drive towards value. It's uh, not easy to do. And one of the operational ways to do this is through what we describe in the book as the payvider model. Uh, and the payvider model could be a joint venture, wholly owned, some other kind of collaboration, I don't think we have enough evidence to discern which is the best way, but my view is realigning economic incentives to achieve a true north to improve health rather than just continuing to deliver willy-nilly services. Uh, that That's the best answer I can give in June of 23, right? Thank you, David. Well, Dr. Nash, I think I might have time for one more question for you from the audience, Great. and this one came in chat, and this was related to the you know, your thoughts on the recent merger of uh, Kaiser Permanente and Geisinger. I know it's a hot topic. Uh, you know, Robert Pearl wrote about it, I think, just a couple of days ago in Forbes. Yes. Uh, you know, just love to get your uh, thoughts on, you know, where that might, you know, create a um, an inflection point sure. for value-based care. Great, great question. So first, full disclosure, I am a board member of the Geisinger Commonwealth School of Medicine. That's, so that's not the fiduciary Geisinger board, but nevertheless important and we had a lot of insight into the creation of Ryzent and I'm a real fan of uh, J. Juan Ruz, the CEO of the entire Geisinger system. Look, no surprise, Kaiser has tried to create a national network and failed, uh, creating a subsidiary Ryzent, R-I-S-A-N-T, and getting Geisinger and J. Juan as the first member component of Ryzent is a great plan. Uh, so I envision that Ryzen will look a lot like CVS Aetna, except they'll have a not-for-profit structure and be motivated uh, in maybe different ways. So I, I'm a fan of Ryzen. I think it's a great idea. Uh, some of the issues that led up to the creation means, you know, a lot of this is publicly available. No secret that Pennsylvania and Danville, the central Pennsylvania, Geisinger's headquartered, of course, aging population, uh, loss of jobs, loss of commercial coverage. Uh, I think Geisinger recognized that despite their efficient system, despite the fact that they own their own health plan, the next five years looked grim without an infusion of money and a, uh, a partner. Uh, and I think they did the right thing. I'm biased, of course, but I think you're going to see a growth in Ryzen's with the eventual plan that uh, KP and Ryzen together will have a national footprint. Well, Dr. Nash, I think we might have time for just uh, uh, maybe a minute or two. I, wa I wanted to get your parting thoughts on 
uh, just the path to healing, you know, like what do we right. need to do, you know, providers, medical education, right. employers, healthcare organizations, uh, society, you know, how do we go about this reformation? Wow. Well, Eric, you're pushing me to the limit here. <laughs> yeah, but you're a good, good pal. So it's okay. Uh, look, um, I have PTSD from COVID and uh, I, I wasn't sick and I wasn't on the front lines. Uh, but I think about it every day because uh, of my interest in history and, and my reflection, we have 1.2 fellow Americans dead. Are we gonna let them die in vain? I mean, that's, that's what gets me out of bed every day. What are we gonna do in their memory to fix America's biggest and I would argue most important industry? And I can't rest and I can't retire until I feel that we're on the right track and I'm not gonna be quiet uh, uh, until I have confidence that we're gonna have new leadership and a new direction to achieve our appropriate goal to improve health. So that's my, that's my mission, Eric, and that's why I wrote the book and uh, I, I can't rest in the memory of 1.2 million of our colleagues dead. Well, thank you for your thoughtful leadership, everything that you've done in population health and transformation. Uh, you know, I, I have to think that with people like you, Dr. Nash, and those of us on the call that are really asking these important questions that we can somehow uh, coalesce around a moral imperative to uh, make our health system better and really improve health equity and population health outcomes. Thanks Great. again. Thank you.